0: The Christian Andriakio case was prematurely closed by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain and follow private investigator Sheila Waisaki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Christian. This is Without Warning. Warning. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Mike Martinez is a professional consultant for forensics. Mike provides forensic science services for criminal and civil cases throughout the United States. Mike Martinez education goes as follows, University of Alabama at Birmingham, he received a Bachelor of Science in Natural Science and Mathematics, he majored in Biology, minored in Chemistry and Music, he has a Master's of Science in Forensic Science, also University of Alabama at Birmingham, he also has a degree as an Emergency Medical Technician. Mike looked at Christian's case and gave me his opinion based on science only. Mike sees the world through science and forensics. Listen to the conversation Mike and I had regarding Christian Andreacchio's case.
2: Credentials is I'm a forensic science consultant in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm providing trace evidence consulting for crime cases, for uh, civil cases, and all aspects of what we consider trace evidence, which is hairs, fibers, or small debris, things that are left behind in a crime scene, to include cons- consultation in the form of crime scene photographs, reconstruction, etc. Suicides, homicides, dump bodies. I've been doing this for over 21 years. When I was first presented with this case, then also I was presented, or you had presented with me, uh, various theories as to what had transpired. I reviewed some of these theories. I've used some of the forensic opinion-based statements by some of the, the experts, as well as the uh, the crime scene photos. What's really important in doing this type of reconstruction or, or re-evaluation based just on poorly shot photographs is... You have to make sure that you don't have any type of bias that you're introducing into the particular equation. You want to make sure that you are keeping an open mind, you're looking at everything, and you're not trying to see things that you want to see and make things to conform to what a particular narrative should or or a family or a person or an agenda is pushing.
1: In order to avoid confirmation bias as Alina Burroughs brought up in episode two, I only give my experts the information specific to their expertise. Once they give me their expert opinion, I will give them further information to discuss.
2: When I first looked at this, I looked at it very openly, very objectively. Having worked many suicide cases, there were many things that just didn't add up. There were things that didn't add up, such as the positioning of the body, the trajectory of the wound, the location of the cartridge, such as the trajectory, spent cartridge case, where it was located, uh, the bullet, where that was located, positioning of the body, as well as, to some degree, where the gun was ultimately found. Again, I look at all these things. Then in addition, I, I look at the information that was provided, such as pictures of the room. There were conjectures as to things that could have been on granulated photos that, in my opinion, were just opinion-based, based on any facts or any scientific uh, revelations of any sort, or even crime scene knowledge. And so, I looked at these things. I tried to either confirm or discount what the previous experts had stated, what they saw, uh, and then uh, I formed my own opinion based on that evaluation.
1: What was your
2: opinion? My opinion was clear, and it was unwavered, and it's still unwavered, and that is, opinion that hasn't changed, and it was definitely not a suicide. It is it clearly a homicide. There was just too many factors that were in play that warrants concern as to how an individual would have to achieve all the mechanisms and the information that we saw at the crime scene for it to be self-inflicted. The circumstances that I was able to ascertain based on the crime scene photos and additional supplemental information that was provided after the fact just seems a little bit too f- far fetched for it to be self inflicted. There has to have been either intentional homicide or a struggle, accidental discharge. There was was something, perhaps somebody else in the room with him at the time. An argument may have ensued. There could be a multitude of factors that we just don't know that we can try to put the pieces together. But if we're just looking at the crime scene photos and we're just looking at whether or not it's a homicide or suicide and extracting all the other information and putting it to the side, my conclusion is that it's most definitely a homicide and uh, not a suicide. Based on what I've seen just in the crime scene photos the, uh, and when they showed the, the in and out, I, I'm not privy to the medical examiner notes, it would appear that the the firearm was held near around the uh, right temple area, perpendicular to the, the face, the, the, the skull. And it was shot in a trajectory that had little to no deviation in angle it exited around the same angle as how the weapon was held in this particular case it seemed to have held pretty level if you're trying to use you know or, or, or zero degrees or near around that which indicates to me that you know the person doesn't necessarily have to be taller than the uh, the, the victim in order to achieve that uh, or, or shorter it just means that they've extended their arm in such a way that they were able to position the gun in, in a manner that the bullet went straight through, again, not exactly, but close to the entering on the right temple and then exiting on around, near, around the left temple area. Again, the exact area, uh, you know, I don't have the medical examiner's notes to pinpoint, but just based on the crime scene photos, it would appear that it was near around the temple area.
1: Let's count the many things forensically that don't add up for this to be a suicide. One, the position of the body. Two, the trajectory of the wound three, the location of the spent cartridge, four, the location of the bullet, five, the position of the gun. We've talked about all of them, but did we ever count them? That's not one, that's not two, not even three things that need to be explained for this to be a suicide. It's five. Five. And that doesn't even take into account inconsistencies in statements. That's a lot of inconsistencies.
2: Aside from the cut on the bridge of his nose, I don't see that there was much bruising or much beating or torturing or any of that case.
1: What about his skull? There seems to be like a fracture in the back of his skull.
2: Again, the medical examiner would be more specific as far as if there's any blunt force trauma. But if there was, that that could have been indicative of something like pistol whipping. Okay. Uh, that's something that we see commonly. Um, people, they'll, they'll, they watch, watch too many movies and they'll go ahead and smack you around on the head with a pistol.
1: And you've said that from the beginning that you think he was pistol whipped.
2: Absolutely. I I thought from the beginning, my conclusions at the beginning, that I believe that there probably was a a person that he knew with him, a a struggle had ensued. At some point in time, the uh, victim, in this case, lost control of the weapon and was succumbed to firearm. And so that would indicate too that, again, I don't believe that this was an accidental discharge in the form of he accidentally shot himself or he was contemplating suicide or he was practicing in the mirror and, and these are all things that you see and I've seen over the years. I didn't I just don't see that and with the supplemental information I was provided that doesn't seem to fit his MO especially considering he had so much to look forward to. He had getting a you know a, I don't know, journeyman training on on the on the river which is you know could lead to a lucrative career as a captain at some point in time. So for a young man to have this opportunity it just really doesn't make sense why he would be so depressed. And again, there are signs of depression that you'll see prior to the ultimate demise, and that would be family members, loved ones, next door neighbors, uh, people that he associates with frequently or infrequently that would say, hey, you know, I, I saw a, a distinct um, personnel uh, uh, deviation that it wasn't normal. None of that none of that came to fruition. None, none, n- nobody could corroborate any of this. And then lastly, when you start looking at the body, typically when you start dealing with people that have s- suicidal tendencies and they're trying to harm themselves, especially in the case of a firearm, you have what they call hesitation marks. And these hesitation marks are things like you're taking the gun, you're hitting it to your head because you're you're upset and you're trying to you're trying to convince yourself or trying to build up enough bravery to go ahead and to ultimately pull that trigger. So none of that again fit what I saw or fit the MO of the of the victim in this case except for the fact that yeah, we had what appeared to be perhaps blunt force trauma on the back of the head and then you had what appeared to be a gash on the bridge of the nose. Again, I wouldn't consider that a uh, hesitation mark. I would consider that as at some point in time, there was a struggle. Now, could that struggle have taken place at that time in the bathroom with an unknown perpetrator? Yes. Could that struggle have taken place at his work? And he could have hurt himself and it, it just opened up uh, when he washed his face or whatever. That's possible too. But again, you know, we would have that information from his coworkers and we'd, we would have that information from where he stopped to get gas or where he stopped to get out before he went home. None of this was evident. So it would seem to me that there was somebody else in the room with him. And, and again, a struggle had ensued. Now, why the gun came out to begin with, it's it's a Kimber, which means that it's more costly than the run-of-the-mill cheap gangbang gun disposable weapon. It's it's not a disposable. It's a weapon that you intend to keep for your home personal protection, a weapon that you intend to take care of, intend to practice with, uh, and uh, keep for a long period of time. It's an investment item. Why did that gun come out to begin with? Where was that gun? gun being stored? For what purpose did he feel threatened enough for that gun to be present and for it to be displayed, whether he displayed it or whether a perpetrator, friend, whomever was in the house, located that gun and then used it against him? This is, where, this is where when you have people with an untrained eye trying to come up with their own opinions, they have a tendency to see things in greater detail, that really are not important. There are things that that are just, it's, it's something that really, it's not germane to this particular events that occurred. It's, it's something that it's ancillary. It's, it's really non-informative because how long has he been there? I, I can't say that I think that he was there longer than what the police think he was there. I mean, that, that's for certain. Now, how long he was there, I mean, the lividity could start taking in place, and, and I, I'm not sure what form of rigor. Well, if you had full rigor mortis, and you had that level of lividity on the calves, and that is a distinct possibility, and that's something that the medical examiners would have, should have, and would have noted uh, in their notes. Cause and manner of death can be readily determined by a skilled medical examiner. However, the time of death is still an approximation based upon a lot of times the experience levels of the medical examiners performing the autopsy. Again, there's a lot of environmental issues that have to take place. In other words, is it cold outside? Are you inside? Is it hot outside? Et cetera, et cetera. You can at least get some gross approximation. In other words, was it recent within an hour or was it within you know, four to six hours? Or was it, are we getting into the decomposition process of um, human decay? So medical examiners should be able to narrow it down pretty close within a broad time frame. And this is important too. Why did it take so long?
1: I took some time to explain to Mike the witnesses that have come forward, specifically the new evidence of the lady who heard the gunshot. Let's continue to listen to our conversation.
2: Well, that's interesting. I mean, if if she feels that the the neighbor feels that, that, that she heard what appeared to be a gunshot, but nevertheless, something that concerned her and it was loud enough. Now, keep in mind, that's a 45 caliber weapon, which would be loud. Uh, she reported to the um, the management company and they failed to do anything, but at least it gives you a general time frame. And then now you can take that and work backwards, forwards in this case, to uh, when the body was actually called in. called in, when it was discovered.
1: She was so concerned because she had her son in this back room that she ran and got her son and went into the bathroom.
2: Right. But keep, keep this in mind, too, is that if I'm not mistaken, according to the roommate or friend or whomever was in the house that discovered the body or failed to discover the body because they said that he was in the bathroom. Because the door was closed. So if the door was closed based on his own statements, how is this possible? So what he, he at some point in time, he's in the house, he shuts the door, shoots himself. And then the roommate, friend, suspect, whomever decides. Well, you know what? I think he's taking a shower, not hearing any running water whatsoever. And then decides to go do a what? Welfare check and discovers him just leaned over the bathtub uh, with copious amounts of blood uh, within the bathtub at that point. And And keep in mind too, one of the other things that that was concerning to me is that there was a lot of blood in that bathtub, which means that there was time for the blood to naturally, by gravitational forces, to seep out of this small wound. Okay. And into that bathtub. So there was a significant amount of time that that had lapsed from the time he was shot to the time that EMS uh, first responders arrived.
1: Because of the type of wound Christian sustained, he died instantly. He's not going to be actively bleeding at this point. The blood in the tub had to drain by gravity through a small wound. That's going to take some time. Again, Think about this. The blood in the tub had to have had drained by gravity through a small wound.
2: Unless this roommate, friend, suspect, whomever is a drug addict is passed out at noon or in the morning time, habitual drug use, and then happens to wake up, that wasn't anywhere in a statement. That wasn't anywhere being told. There was none of that was told. And the fact that that seems to have been ignored by the detective, which this this isn't this isn't something that a police officer is going to miss, especially a trained detective i mean this is this is kind of like how could you miss this really big obvious piece of the puzzle and then you come to this conclusion of suicide when you have so many unknown factors that are pointing in clearly an opposite direction. I was young once, I didn't give my friends my debit card and my pin number to go ahead and use it. Anytime they wanted to, I mean, you know, as a young man, you're on a budget, you have bills to pay, you're you're trying to save as much money as you can. And friends can easily take advantage of a situation, especially when they know your full bank account, when they have your debit card and plugging it up in the ATM, and then they'll go ahead and take a little extra for themselves for, you know, a night of the town. So that doesn't add up. It really doesn't add up, and he doesn't seem like this uh, gregarious kind of fellow who's just going ahead and is like, "Hey, hey live off of me, all my buddies, and don't worry, I'll, I have a good-paying job." And he seems to be level-headed, frugal uh, in the fact that save and to start a new career, a new life journey. So now that the credit card doesn't add up, tampering at the body—I don't know, getting cigarettes out of his pocket—that that's, I mean, that this that, this is absurd. I mean, why this wasn't investigated? more thoroughly. Why would a person, and this is another thing too, is that, you know, this isn't TV. This is real life. And when you see that level of uh, the blood, the, the gore, the smell, everything that goes along with the whole situation, you're not rummaging around, poking around, looking at it like, you know, like this is some, you know, uh, unforeseen or unknown toy that you found in the driveway. You know, this is a clearly a dead body. Normal people stay away because it's scary it's fearful why was that taking place what was this guy what was he thinking what was going on in his mind why was he so brave to think that he would go do such a thing has he seen dead people before has he been around situations where he felt comfortable enough that hey you know what oh the guy's just dead it's just a part of life and uh, no big deal fingers are pointing in a complete opposite direction of suicide this wasn't self-inflicted by any sense the imagination Uh, interesting that you have professionals that are looking at uh, a so-called blemish by the light switch by the door of the bathroom as being somehow related to a bullet Uh, this is preposterous how you even came to this conclusion based on the trajectory that we do know which is in the opposite direction. How is it that you have professionals that are seemingly seeing microscopic, high velocity blood spatter on granulated, poor quality photos on the sink of the bathroom? How is it that when you can see blood spatter behind the door and wall area of the bathroom, then that's ignored? So again, that's where you start getting not just bias, but you get professional negligence. And I think it's the responsibility of the professionals in this business, like myself, to provide clarity to not only the family members, but to the people that are out there listening so that we don't have these runaway conspiracy theories and all these misdirections because that's all they are. They're taking away from what really happened and that's not what we want to do and professionals should be able to guide people in a proper venue so that they can show them okay well you know that's not important let's focus on what really is important for this investigation let's not impose our own personal bias our contextual bias our cognitive bias or any other form of bias into this particular picture let's use our own judgment our own training and our own expertise come up with a plausible narrative, present this to the family. In this particular situation, I do believe that the family is right. And the crime scene photos, just the crime scene photos in and of itself, without any other information being provided, supports the family's conclusion that this was not
0: self-inflicted.
1: I asked Mike if there was a scientific test that could have proven one way or the other.
2: Well, no, actually, there there are chemical tests that can be conducted uh, on the surface of any inanimate object. That can be used to the test for the elements that are associated with the composition of the bullet. So in many cases, and I'm assuming in this case, I'm not certain because I don't have the ballistics report in front of me, but I'm assuming it was typically uh, a, a, a copper jacketed perhaps hollow point lead bullet. So I would find copper residue as well as lead residue where I suspect perhaps a bullet may have lodged or had been removed. So there could be tests for that but keep in mind too this is a heavy forceful bullet that is not going to easily just go ahead and just like graze or hit. It's going to be in the wall. You're going to have to dig it out of the wall and then we're assuming that it would have hit a two by four frame of the door for it to be lodged there, otherwise it would have went right through the sheetrock on both sides. So there's there no ricocheting going on, this is, this is, there's, no, there's no bullet, there's, there, there, there's nothing to, to suggest any of that. Now, an interesting point, too, to bring up is that you could also, on the bullet that was recovered from the bathtub, if it was a hollow point, it would have retained whatever was in the trajectory of that bullet when it was fired. So, for example, I've had situations where people are shooting into a house from a drive-by shooting, and I see where the bullet went through the front door. I see wood. I see paint from the front door in the bullet. Through a couch, I see stuffing, fabric from the couch, and then it hits the individual that was sitting on the couch, and they're injured or or they are killed. So, you can see that in the, the bullet upon closer evaluation, forensically.
1: If the police believed the mark by the light switch was where the bullet hit, I asked Mike if there was a scientific test that could have proven one way or the other.
2: So to answer your question, yes, there are tests that can be done. Were those tests done? No. Why would they be done? Because there's no way that that was caused by a bullet. And I think even a basic second-year patrol officer would know that. Why is the position of the gun when it was found is important to you? And I want to know why is the condition of whether the firing hammer was pulled back or it wasn't pulled back. And we'll take it one at a time. So the first one, why was the position of the gun important in in this particular case?
1: I think as a whole, you have to look at, is it possible, and let's take it as a first responder, you first walk in and you see the position of the body, you see the blood in the bathroom, and then they couldn't find the gun originally. Sure. And so you have to go, okay, you shoot yourself and the gun is going to land right around somewhere here. The position of the body's accurate and start looking at where's the bullet, where's the gun? And the fact that the gun is wedged between left thigh and the tub and it's decocked, he didn't decock it, he's dead. Once you pull the trigger and it goes, the pattern that it went, the wound pattern, He's done,
2: correct? In this particular situation, let's just take, again, where the weapon was recovered from. Okay. Okay, So you're you're telling me that's important because it shows that this could not have been self-inflicted. And this is just another piece of the pie that that you're putting together. As a whole. As a whole, right. I got you. I got you. So... Now let's look at how could this be done without there being any type of foul play. I agree. Okay, let's or let's think about it. I mean, so so this is what we do as investigators, as forensic scientists. This is what we do. We go through and we reconstruct. We try to look at all possibilities. Now I have seen guns on suicides that have been left you know, in precarious positions. I I mean, five feet or more away from the body. Uh, I've seen, I've seen situations where, where the person's right-handed, but it's the gun's found in their left hand. Okay. So can all of these be explained or are these all now conspiracy, you know, homicides? No. Well, to answer that question, I can say that no, because we go and we reconstruct and we do some testing and we find out that, Hey, wait a minute, it is possible because of the backblow of the weapon, the power, the caliber of the weapon, the weight of the weapon, the type of the weapon, how the weapon was being held at the time, could cause the weapon to fling out of one's hand and fall in this unusual position. Now. In order for that to happen, however, we're going to have to sit there and say the body fell in that position. Now, if we know the body did not fall in that position, then we can conclude that there's no way the gun would have been randomly placed in that position from the discharging. So therefore, the gun in that position could have been from the act of another individual moving the or staging the scene and then placing the gun just haphazardly tucking it away, make, making it look like it was in his pocket or whatever, or whatever, I mean, not thinking it through. Remember, most most crimes are not thought through to the point of you need Sherlock Holmes to figure out, okay? Bad people who commit crimes are lazy, they don't put a lot of forethought into the crimes that are being committed, and they think they can just get away with something, with some harebrained story. So I would agree with you now. I would agree with you that that's a big piece. You've explained it to me. I would agree. Scientifically, I would have to say yes. I would go with the, another piece of the, the fact that it wasn't self-inflicted. Now, the next question. So knowing that, does the hammer being cocked or not cocked have greater weight or less weight than finding the gun in this very seemingly staged position?
1: See, I guess I'm looking at it differently. I think as a whole, all of those things are important. I put gun location, decocked, position of body. So all of those all right. things were important. However, but you're taking you, but, but it she,
2: but she, Sheila, we are all entitled to our opinions, <laughs> <laughs> whether I, it's wrong or not. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to convince you I'm right. <laughs> no, I'm you just, never do that. <laughs> I, I, I'm just. I'm just trying to look at. I'm, I'm trying to look at things in a methodical and, like you said, a individual-based perspective, Which and then you, try to discount or corroborate. All possibilities that could explain why this is what it is, or this piece of evidence is where it is, or this particular crime happened the way it happened. Because remember, and there's something that's really important that viewers need to understand is that this isn't a crime. Isn't something that can be predicted. Okay, you're not watching or reading a, a Sherlock Holmes book or movie or watching uh, CSI reruns. Okay, crimes cannot be statistically predicted, and outcomes be determined or predetermined. Crimes are unique historical events. A crime is that. It is a unique historical event. We can only we can only deduce through inferences as to what could be a narrative or a number of possible narratives that would give us closer to what actually took place. Now, in the case of this particular case, this is really important because the narrative is pointing in a complete different direction than what was being judged or concluded by the investigating agency i mean you know in this case we're talking self-inflicted suicide versus homicide so we're not even we're not even close to getting anywhere near probable narratives or likelihoods in this case because we can't even get to that talking point at this at this juncture i can totally empathize with family members because this becomes so incredibly frustrating because when when you have professionals that can't agree on just the basic denominator and put their focus on one specific probable or plausible outcome then you have frustrations you have conspiracy theories being built you have you have all these you know things come to light that have no relevance in the case but then everybody's under a magnifying glass fingers are being pointed elected officials are getting nervous cover-ups are taking Place And it just becomes one giant hairball of knotted mess. Again, we have to first define our points, our investigations, define what we're trying to solve, what we're trying to prove, what we're seeing, what is the narrative, what is is the evidence that we know, what can we exclude, okay? And this is another important thing. What can we include as being possible? What can we exclude as being impossible? So we have to look at all these things. Now, we have to also keep an open mind, and this is the most important thing. Because remember, because it's a unique historical event, it could be that one crazy outlier. And I've had cases where you know what, it's pointing in a homicide, but that one crazy outlier. It turned out that was a suicide. The most important thing in looking at these type of cases is to keep a wide, berth, open mind to all possibilities. Again, I did that for many months in this particular case, and I still cannot wrap my head around it being self-inflicted. I've looked at every possible thing I could possibly derive, every scenario, every case situation that I've worked in the past, that they have been similar, all the other uh, ancillary information that's been provided from the good work that you've done and the other private investigators on the particular case. And I still can't come up with anything that would suggest even remotely uh, that it was self-inflicted.
1: In Christian's case, my team brought in the Pharaoh machine and an investigator to scan the bathroom so Christian's crime scene would be accurate. No guessing, just science. In a future episode, I will be discussing the findings. This isn't complicated. The reason Mike, other investigators, and experts have come together is to help a family, just to help a family. This case isn't complicated. Neither are the reasons we're involved.
0: Christian's family gives their full permission for any and all details to be shared and hope that the truth will come out. If you know anything at all, call 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at SheilaWysocki.com.
1: The t-shirt hashtag not suicide proceed goes to help Ray advertise Christian's case and also the production of the podcast. If you have a problem with helping Ray, don't buy him. For those who have bought them and sent pictures, thank you.
0: If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal ideation or is actively thinking about taking their life, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, join Patreon today. Go to P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot to help us to continue giving voices to victims and families who have been silenced. Join today and help justice be served. Without warning, executive director, executive producer, and host, Sheila Waisaki.
1: A special thanks to Lori Morrison and Selena Kavala.
0: Mix and mastering by resonant recording An announcer... Tim Evans. Thank you for listening to Without Warning. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you or someone you know knows something about this case or the people involved. You could submit tips by calling 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at shilawaasaki.com.